We are all on a journey. We build dreams and create expectations. When the road we're traveling isn't straight and smooth, we encounter unexpected detours. Road closure ahead. That delay us from moving forward. This is where dreams die and passions fade. Obstacle in road ahead. We can feel lost. Turn around when possible. But there's an alternate route. We can learn about navigating our expectations with a God who knows the way forward. Redirecting route. We are in the fifth and final week of our current series, looking at expectations. As we've been saying in the course of this series, fall is a time for new beginnings and fresh starts, so it brings lots and lots of expectations. Expectations are high this time of year for sure, but they're operating in the background of our lives throughout the year. As we launched this series, we shared four key truths about expectations that are absolutely vital for us to grasp for our mental health and well-being. If we fail to grasp these truths, then our expectations can actually work against us, even harming and hurting us. Truth number one, we said expectations are multifaceted. You have expectations for every area of your life, and so do I. Every day, all day long, we operate under expectations, simple expectations that are simply a part of everyday life. Other expectations, they can be practical necessities. And still others that we hold in our hearts that matter to us a great deal. Truth number two, expectations are a lens through which we evaluate life. When your job or school is meeting or exceeding your expectations, you feel good about your job. You love your school. When a family member or friend does what you want them to do, you feel better about that person. You feel closer to them. On the other hand, when you have expectations for someone or something and they're not meeting those expectations, you do not feel good about that relationship, that employee, that experience, that event. It can leave you feeling annoyed, maybe even angry. Number three, expectations are a two-way street. While you have expectations for me, guess what? I have expectations for you, too. Expectations are placed on us all the time, at work, at school, in our family life, in communities, among our friends and neighbors. And just as we evaluate others by how they're living up to the expectations we form for them, they're doing the same thing for us. Four, when it comes to expectations, we are responsible for managing them. Managing expectations means, first of all, and above all, actually knowing what expectations we have and hold. It's really quite true that all of us have unarticulated expectations that sometimes we don't even think about until, that is, they go unmet. And then we think about them a lot. Knowing and naming our expectations 
is critical to managing them. But it's also critical that you've got to confirm those expectations are realistic. Two weeks ago, we touched on God's expectations for us. And then last week, we looked at our expectations for God. You have some, perhaps many, expectations for God, and your thoughts about God or the church might be colored by whether God has met your expectations or failed to do so. Today, as we wrap up this series, we're going to look at the key virtue, the absolutely indispensable virtue when it comes to all our expectations, why it's important, and what's at stake if we don't keep this virtue in mind. As we close out this series, just a brief reminder that we'd like to make at the end of every series, if you've missed any or all of this series, or you'd like to share it with a friend who might need to hear this message, check it out on our website where you'll find all five weeks. Today we're looking at a story from the second book of Kings. It's set in the Middle East about 850 years before Christ. The story is actually not about the king, in this case, the king of Aram, present-day Syria. This is a story about a member of the king's staff called Naaman. And here's what we learn about Naaman. Naaman, the army commander of the king of Aram, was highly esteemed and respected by his master. For through him, the Lord had brought victory to Aram. But valiant as he was, the man was a leper. So Naaman has a lot going for him. He has a very successful career as the commander of the king's army. He's a valiant man, a man of character and courage. As a result, he's highly esteemed and respected by the king. He enjoys the king's favor. We learn later that he has a great deal of financial resources and wealth at his disposal. His name means pleasing or beautiful. So we can guess this is a good-looking guy. However, he has a problem, his health. He was a leper. Leprosy was one of the most dreaded diseases in ancient times. At best, it was a major irritation and source of discomfort and disfigurement. At its worst, it could lead to the loss of limbs and even death. So Naaman has a problem, a reminder in itself that everyone has their problems and struggles and challenges, no matter how blessed they seem to be, no matter how put together they are. The story goes on. Now the Arameans had captured from the land of Israel a little girl who became the servant of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, if only my master would present himself to the prophet in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. This suggests how well Naaman was respected. Even a foreign servant girl was concerned about him. As a Jew, the girl suggests they turn to the God of Israel for help and healing and wholeness, specifically suggesting that he called on the Lord's prophet at that time, a man named Elisha. In the next scene, we see Naaman proposing exactly that to the king. 
And the king answered, Go, and I will send along a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman set out, taking along ten silver talents, six thousand gold pieces, and the festal garments. The king supports him. He gives him a great deal of money and resources to pay for the treatment and the travel. Not only that, but the king of Aram writes a letter of introduction for Naaman to the king of Israel, a sort of endorsement, as it were. The appearance of Naaman and his retinue in the court of the king of Israel would have been a great big deal. So it's easy to appreciate that everyone's expectations at this point in the story are sky high. Well, the story takes some twists and turns we're going to skip over. You can read the complete saga in the fifth chapter of Second Kings. It's a great story, but we only have time for part of it. Naaman ends up in the king of Israel's court, and the prophet Elisha hears about it. Because, probably, at this point, everybody in the kingdom had heard about it. And here's what happened. Elisha, the man of God, sent word to the king, let Naaman come to me and find out there is a prophet in Israel. Elisha. Elisha was the leading prophet in Israel at this time, whom God worked through in powerful, mighty ways. He was a successor of the legendary prophet Elijah, whom we devoted a whole series to this past summer. Elisha invites Naaman to come and see him, and Naaman, with great expectation, immediately complies. His whole entourage, and what an entourage it was, horses and chariots, military troops and officers, dignitaries and officials of the court, all in solemn and noble procession to the greatest prophet of the day for what was expected to be an amazing, a powerful miracle. Here's actually what happened. They stopped at the prophet's door. Elisha sent Naaman the message, go and wash in the Jordan. That's it. Great moments in unmet expectations. Elsewhere in Kings, we learn that Elisha's house was less than impressive, really no more than a shack. Worse still, he doesn't even bother to come out to greet his guest. He sends a servant instead. And worst of all, the prophet's prescription for healing seems laughably simplistic, washing in the Jordan. The Jordan River at this point, no more than a muddy, filthy swamp. This does not sit well with Naaman. Naaman went away angry, saying, I thought he would surely come out and stand there and call on the name of the Lord his God and would move his hands over the sores and cure the leprous spots. With this, he turned in anger and left. So why is Naaman so angry? Simple. He didn't get what he expected. He had a vision. He had a vision for how he thought this great man would perform a great miracle to meet this great moment. And it was anything but great. Think about this, too. Because the situation was not as expected, because Elisha did not act as Naaman expected, he decides to walk away not just from his best hope for healing, his only hope. 
If you'll peel back the anger, it comes back to the sin of pride. That's almost always the case, isn't it? Underlying anger is pride. Despite having a solid character, Naaman allows his pride to get in the way of his own best interest. How dumb is that? (laughs) But we do it all the time. Let's face it, however solid your character, however good your heart, it's easy to let your pride get in the way. I know, it's easy for me, for sure. Last week we talked about aligning our vision with God's vision for our life. Well, along with aligning our vision with God's vision, we've got to align our ways with God's ways. Scripture tells us elsewhere, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways above your ways, says the Lord. Part of our spiritual journey, actually a big part of it, is not just getting to where God wants us to go, but learning God's ways on getting there. How? Well, it was the spiritual giant, St. Bernard of Clairvaux, who was once asked, what are the three most important Christian virtues? The three most important Christian virtues. And without hesitation, he answered, humility, humility, humility. Spirituality 101 is simply this. There is a God, and it's not you. We need humility to acknowledge that fact and adjust our expectations to God's ways accordingly. As noble and virtuous as Naaman was, he's confusing himself with God, at least in this moment. He thinks he knows better, and he's ready to walk away from his last hope for healing. But happily, he slows down and gets some good counsel instead. His servant came to him and reasoned with him. My father, if the prophet had told you to do something extraordinary, would you not do it? All the more since he told you wash and be clean. This verse once again speaks to Naaman's character. His servants love him and respect him enough to approach him and ask him to reconsider his decision to walk away. They felt comfortable enough to challenge him, and that says a lot about his leadership. And that's worth noting. We need to make sure we give permission to others, at least a few others, to challenge us when we're making bad choices. We need people in our life who can speak into our life when our pride is getting in the way. And Naaman is emotionally healthy enough, he's strong enough to accept this challenge. Look what happened. So Naaman went down and plunged into the Jordan seven times, according to the word of the man of God. His flesh became again like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. He returned now with his whole retinue to the man of God. On his arrival, he stood before him and said, Now I know there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Naaman humbles himself to go and wash in the Jordan River according to Elisha's word, which was God's word. As a result, his flesh becomes clean like a little child. God heals. Healing 
is a sign, it's a definitive sign of God's kingdom coming amongst us. But beyond the healing, Naaman now knows God personally because he's come to know God's ways. When you humble yourself enough to submit to God's ways, you may not always get exactly what you're looking for, but you definitely get to know the Lord better. Over and over again in life, God invites us to learn his ways so that he might bring new blessing to us. Above all, the blessing of knowing him better. It all comes down to this. Don't expect to hear from God what you desire. Instead, desire what you hear.